Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. It is so great to have a full room. Students, you're back, baby. Come on. Come on. It's going to be a great year. Uh, Welcome back, college students. I heard there was a pancake party last night. Who's at the pancake party? I I imagine the rest of you are still sleeping in. This may be the first uh, salt pancake party that didn't get shut down by the police. So congratulations on that. It only took us a decade to convince the Cedar Falls Police Department that uh, there are no drugs in the pancakes. And and it is 100% orange juice. And so, uh, yeah, better late than never, I suppose. But welcome back. Class starts tomorrow. You're going to do great. Um, And if not... Sorry. All right. You're gone. It, it'll be fine, though. All right. It'll be fine. So uh, we're at the point where students are back. The summer is winding down. Even if you're not a college student, you families, right? You're, you got your back to school shopping going on. Uh, we are like holding out to the last minute. So things are kind of picked through. I need to take Judah, you know, this afternoon to get shoes. And so we're a little late on things, but we all kind of feel the summer rhythm kind of winding down as we turn the corner into the fall season. And what we want to do as a church for the next three weeks is that as we turn the corner into the fall season, we want to remind ourselves of a hope beyond our hopes. Say, what does that mean? A hope beyond our hopes. Well, my guess is that for many of you, as you step into a new season, as you step into a new semester, as, as the, as the seasons just change and we all feel that kind of like societal transition is that you step into these next several weeks with some hopes and aspirations. Maybe for you parents, it's quite simply the hope of getting your house back as you send them off to school. You're like, oh, thank God. Maybe for... You freshmen, it's the hope of finding some friends, finding a friend group. Maybe you're kind of like rebranding yourself. Good luck with that. Maybe for you seniors, it's the hope of of just graduating. You're like, just get me through this year. Maybe I'll get that internship. Maybe if you're, you know, elementary ed major, you're like, I hope I get like that student placement, that, you know, student teaching placement, that place, I got to do this. But for the next three weeks, what we want to do is is we want to put before us a hope beyond our hopes. We want to put before ourselves the only hope that is strong enough to bear the weight of your expectations. You probably have some expectations of the next several weeks. We want to put before us a hope that is strong enough to bear the weight of those expectations. We want to put before us a hope that is consistent enough to actually orient your life around. We want to put before ourselves a hope that in the end won't come up short. And the hope that we're going to put before ourselves for these next three weeks is the hope of the gospel. Now, the word gospel sounds like a very churchy word, but in fact, it's a biblical word. It's a Bible word. And what the word gospel simply means is it means good news. And so what we want to do for the next three weeks is we want to unpack three key facets of the Christian faith. And that is the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And, we, and, my, and my hope is that at the end of this kind of like three-week mini-series is that we will be able to to see once again, what is the good news? What is the good news of the life of Christ? What's the good news in the death of Christ? And what is the good news in the resurrection 
of Christ. And not only that, not only what is the good news, but why is that still good news for me today? Why is the life of Jesus still good news? Why is his death still good news? And why, and why is his resurrection still good news? So for this first week, as we focus on the life of Christ, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. Now, if you aren't familiar with the book of Romans, Romans, the book of Romans has been called the Himalayas of the Bible, with Romans chapter 8 kind of serving as the Mount Everest of Scripture. And just as the Himalayas is one of the most beautiful mountain ranges in Scripture, what the book of Romans is for us is it's one, it's, it's one of the most beautiful uh, explanations, portraits of the great gospel truths that we hold as believers. But just like the Himalayas... Some of the best views are the, like the hardest to get to, right? But I, I hope that as we get into Romans chapter 5 here, we're going to see that, that the view is worth the climb. So Romans chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 12, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Here's what the Apostle Paul writes here in Romans 5, 12 through 21. He says this, Therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone." For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord." Now, perhaps as I read through our passage for this morning, uh, you maybe had a difficult time following Paul's argument here. And this is partly because we've parachuted into Romans, right? We're in Romans chapter five. And so we've kind of like, we've been dropped off at the midway point in our climb through the Himalayas of the Bible. And so we need to understand a little bit of the context uh, surrounding where we're at here in the book of Romans. And what we see at the beginning of Romans is that Paul is greeting Roman believers. And then he describes to them his eagerness to preach the gospel to them which is really important because remember, these are Roman Christians. 
These are Christians, and now you have the Apostle Paul telling Christians, I am so excited to preach the gospel to you. Which for us, we go, well, why would he do that? They're already Christians. Isn't, isn't the gospel for unbelievers? And while that's certainly true, what we see here is that the gospel isn't only for unbelievers, but it's also, and I would say especially for believers as well. And so what we see right at the very beginning of the book of Romans is that the gospel isn't just the beginning of the Christian faith. The gospel is the substance of the Christian faith. You see, the gospel is not just what you need, is not just what we need to begin in our faith. It's what we need to continue in our faith. Another way to think about it would be that the gospel is not only the spark that starts the engine, it's the fuel that powers it. So he's eager to preach the gospel to them, and he's not ashamed of the gospel because in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And then for the next four chapters, Romans chapter 1 through chapter 4, right before our passage here in Romans chapter 5, Paul goes on to describe He takes a lot of time describing unrighteousness. Another word for that would be sin, trespasses. And he speaks about specific sins like greed and slander and and gossip and pride and sexual sin. And then here in chapter 5, now that we've gotten to chapter 5, Paul, what he's doing here is he's zooming out and saying, I want to preach the gospel to you. I'm now describing to you the state of humanity, the sin, the trespasses, the unrighteousness that exists. And then he zooms out in chapter 5 and goes, where did all of this sin? come from? What is wrong with our world? What is wrong with our lives? Why is it that no matter how hard you try, no matter what you turn to, it seems like you have this indwelling sense that you aren't perfect? How many times have you perhaps used your perfectionism as an excuse for why something you've done isn't as good as you wish it could be? My guess is that most of us recognize and are frustrated by the fact that we are not perfect. Where did all of this brokenness in our world come from? Which it's a really important question, right? Because you don't have to be a Christian to know that there's something wrong with our world. And what's really interesting about this is that despite all of our technological advances, despite all of our supposed moral advances with all of the talk of progress that we have in our modern day, how is it that the last 122 years of human history have been the bloodiest years of human history? How? With all of our progress. You see, it's intuitive to most of us that in order to fix a problem, we have to deal with the source rather than the symptoms. So when we first moved into our house, uh, we just live like right over here. And when we first moved into our house, it wasn't too long after we, uh, until we discovered a leak in our roof. And by discovered, what I mean is uh, we woke up with the roof, with our ceiling in our bedroom leaking exactly on our heads. It, I, you could not have planned it that way. It was amazing. Like, I, that's how I woke up, was 
something's dripping on me and the ceiling is leaking of all places in a house to leak. Like that's where it is. And so, so we get up and we're just like, okay, what it's the, it's like two in the morning. Right. So we're moving things and we're putting, you know, buckets where you need to, and we go sleep on the couches. Cause what are you going to do at two in the morning? It's like, well, I guess our house is just broken. And so the next day uh, we call the roofing, we call a roofing company and uh, the guys come out and they kind of look at it and they begin to explain to me the way that uh, that leaks and ceilings work, which I was thankful for because I had never thought of it until this moment, right? It sounds kind of elementary, but he's like, yeah, it's not as easy as we'll just, where is it leaking in the ceiling? And then look right above that, right? Because it's water. It's, it's moving to the lowest point, the path of least resistance. And so where it might be leaking in the ceiling may not be actually where it's coming in in the roof. And so basically this was his way of saying, there's really no way for us to know exactly where the water is coming in, sorry. And so we're like... Well, that's not helpful, but at least now I know how leaks work, you know? And so uh, then we prayed for hail and God sent hail and we got a new roof out of it. So you're welcome. But that's how we fixed it. It was just like, it just leaked until the Lord fixed our roof, you know, or State Farm, one of those. And so, but that's just what it was. Now, now here, you would, you know, though, that in the meantime, if I would have simply just kept like patching the ceiling that that's only as good of a solution as it is dry. But, in, but when the next storm comes, my like, temporary solution to fix the symptom has done nothing to address the source of the problem. You see, some of you are trying to fix the problems in your world, and some of you have aspirations to fix the problems in our world but you're simply dealing with the symptoms rather than addressing the source. Which is why, for some of you, you are only as hopeful, you are only as joyful, you are only as stable as long as there isn't a storm blowing through your life. But then the minute that difficulty comes, the minute that adversity comes, the minute that sickness comes, it comes in and rips apart your temporary solution to your actual problem. And you're left mitigating the damage. But you see, what we have here in Romans chapter five is a better assessment of our problem and a better solution for our problem. And what is Paul's assessment of our problem? Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In other words, Paul is saying, where did all the brokenness in our world come from? And then what he does is he steps right next to Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music and he says, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. And he goes back and he points to Adam. <laughs> Things are the way that they are because of the terrible effects of Adam's disobedience 
in the garden. That's the, that's the one man here in verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through one man, you could put kind of in parentheses above that, Adam. You see, here, here's the problem with eliminating Adam and with eliminating the biblical creation narrative is because if you eliminate Adam and if you eliminate the biblical account of creation from your worldview, you eliminate the explanation of the source of all of our problems. And therefore, you end up eliminating your ability to actually address the source of those problems. You see, the Bible is very interesting in its explanation of the existence of all things. Oceans of ink have been spilled, uh, speaking toward the apparent discrepancies between science and the Bible. And, 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 it, and then even within you know, Christian belief, it's like, well, okay, so the Genesis account, is this like a literal 24-hour days or is this like kind of longer days? And that's been all this stuff, like all these arguments, right? Now, what I want to say here is while those discussions aren't, aren't like of little value, what I do want to say is that if we spend all of our time arguing about and discussing whether or not the, the days were 24 hours or they were longer, if we spend all our time focusing on that, we, we run the risk of categorically missing the point. And here's why. It's because what we get with the Genesis account of creation is not ultimately intended to be a modern scientific analysis of the origin of all things, but instead what the Genesis account of creation was meant to do, it was, is, it was, is, it was intended to stand apart from the ancient creation myths of the ancient world for God's people who had just been rescued from a pagan and polytheistic Egypt. And so here's what I mean that while the ancient stories portrayed the God who created the earth as he himself having been created by other gods, what the Genesis account gives God's people is that God is the uncreated creator who existed before all things. That while the ancient creation stories portrayed the world as coming into existence as a result of this violent cataclysmic battle between the gods. And that's how, that's how everything in the world came into existence. It was just this explosion between the gods. Well, the Genesis account gives God's people is that it says that all things came into existence out of the intentional, creative, generous act of love of this uncreated creator. You see, while the ancient creation myths said that humans were created from the blood of a conquered and rebellious God, and by the way, that's, that's, the, that's the ancient myth's explanation for why brokenness in our world, well, we, we were just created from the blood of a conquered, rebellious God, and that rebellion still lives within us. The Genesis account, the Bible says that humans weren't created from violence, but instead were created out of the self-giving, life-breathing love of this uncreated God. Fast forward to today. The modern story of the creation, of the explanation of all things, is that all things came into existence as a result of natural forces colliding in chaos. But then the Bible says that humans are the result of, a, of the good design of a supernatural creator 
who loves the creation that he designed. You, do, do you notice what's interesting here is that actually the ancient myths and the, modern, and the modern understanding of the existence of all things is actually not all that different. While the ancient myths said that everything came about because of violent and chaotic gods at war, the modern worldview says that everything came about because of violent, chaotic physical forces. In other words, the ancient myths and the modern creation and the modern understanding of the existence of all things are, are both based in violence and chaos, which begs the question, if everything came about through violent or explosive or chaotic means, then wouldn't it be the most natural thing in the world for our world to maintain the same chaos and violence that brought it about in the first place? Wouldn't that be the most natural thing in the world? If, if in fact, whether you believe in violent, chaotic gods or violent, chaotic physical forces, wouldn't it make sense that the thing that came from those violent and chaotic forces would maintain violence and chaos? And so why do we struggle against violence? Why do we want to bring order out of chaos? Why do we want peace? Because even, even if you aren't a Christian, my guess is that you would like for our world to be less violent. You would like for our world to be more peaceful. You would like for our world to be less chaotic and more loving. We can agree on that, but the question that you have to answer is, why do you want that? Why don't we just see war and suffering and strife as normal? Could it be that it's because deep within us, we long to go back to the way things were before everything was broken? Could it be that the reason we want things to be different is because deep within us, we all desire to go home? Could it be that every time we see something on our newsfeed, every time we hear something in the news or on the radio or whatever it is, every time we see something broken and we think to ourselves, it ought not be that way, could the fact that we say that be an echo in our soul from a time when everything was declared by God to be very good? And deep within us, we recognize that it isn't, but it should have been. You see, the reason our world is the way that it is isn't because it functions according to its design. It's because it functions against its design. And while God created the world in love, unblemished by sin, unblemished by death, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, this is how everything became broken. Death spread to all people because all sinned. So Paul has given us a better assessment of our problem. But very quickly here in our passage, he turns to give us a better solution for our problem. Look at verse 14. The end of verse 14. So death reigned from Adam to Moses. All those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. Here's what it says. He, referring to Adam, is a type of, of the coming one. What does that mean? 
means that Adam is like, but not totally like, the one who is to come to bring peace to the chaos, to put all the brokenness back together. That Adam is a type of the coming one, Jesus Christ. How is Adam a type of Christ? Is Adam a type of Christ in every way? Surely that can't be the case because Adam sinned. Adam was broken. Adam was imperfect. So how was Adam a type of Christ? Well, he was a type of Christ in this way. He was a type of Christ in that the implications, in that what he did has implications for everyone. This is what Paul is saying. What, you see, what Adam did has implications for every one of you, and yet what Christ did also has implications for every one of you. That's how it Adam is a type of Christ. And then the rest of this passage, Paul labors to show us how Adam's sin and therefore our sin, which is the source of all of suffering and death and brokenness in our world, he's struggling to show us how the source of all of our problems pales in comparison to the solution that God gives in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. Try to follow this here. But the gift Salvation in Christ, the gift, is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, how much more has that overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation, but from the many trespasses came the gift resulting in in justification, in other words, what Paul is, is talking about here is he's talking about the imbalanced grace of God. The imbalanced grace of God. You say, what do you mean? He says, well, from one sin, that is Adam's sin, from eating from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, from that sin came judgment. And then what it would make sense to say is that it would make sense for him to say, and then from the many trespasses, from the many sins, you would expect him to say, came more judgment, right? If from one sin came judgment, from more sin came more judgment. But that's not what he says. He says, from one sin came judgment, but from many trespasses came the gift. The imbalanced grace of God. And then it crescendos here in verse 20. The law came along to multiply the trespasses, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. In other words, you can't out-sin the grace of God. Now, this begs the question. If you read on in, in, in chapter 6, you'll see right away, Paul anticipates the rebuttal. He goes, well, if sin just multiplies grace, then why shouldn't I just keep on sinning? And Paul says, uh, yeah, it doesn't exactly work like that. And so, like, by no means should that be the implication. But what he's saying is, is that you can't out-sin the grace of God. Do you see the imbalanced grace of God towards unworthy sinners? You see, Jesus didn't just come to die. We began our series here talking about the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't just come to die. He came to live. And when the Son of God came in the flesh, why is Paul bringing up Adam here? I think it's because when the Son of God came in the flesh, what we see in the gospel accounts is that Jesus Christ relived 
Adam's life. You say, what are you talking about? Well, to pull from a good friend of mine, he's a second century theologian. A lot of my friends are dead, uh, like old dead theologians. They're the best of friends because they can't inconvenience you. <laughs> I'm kidding. Second century theologian Irenaeus, he, he, he put it something like this. He says, just as Adam came from the virgin earth, Christ came from a virgin womb. And just as Adam's sin came to humanity through the fruit of the tree, salvation came by Christ's obedience on a tree. You see, the life that Adam should have lived, the obedience that Adam should have displayed, Jesus relived Adam's life to undo what Adam did. And not only that, but Jesus lived the life that Noah should have lived. That when after the flood, Noah, Noah lays there, remember the flood account, after the flood, Noah's this great, you know, patriarch of the faith, amazing. What happens? The waters recede and there Noah is, drunk and naked in his tent, bringing shame upon his family. And just as Noah lay drunk and naked in his tent, bringing shame upon his family, Jesus hung naked on the cross, drinking the cup of God's wrath and incurring our shame upon himself so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. You see, Jesus fulfilled the promise of God to Abraham when he told Abraham that he would make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the heaven and that now in Christ, believers are established as lights of the world. You see, Jesus is the true and greater Israel. That while Israel wandered around in the desert for 40 years as a result of their disobedience, Jesus emerged from 40 days in the desert after enduring temptation victoriously. You see, Jesus didn't just die the death that you and I deserve to die. He lived the life that Adam couldn't live, that Noah couldn't live, that Abraham couldn't live, that Jonah couldn't live, that David couldn't live, and that you and I couldn't live apart from him. You see, Jesus perfectly relived our disobedient lives so that we could be adopted into God's family and called sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, and then to be empowered to live obedient lives as he lives his righteous life in and through us now. So, how is the life of Christ good news for us today? What does this mean for us today? Two things, real quick. First, that Jesus relived the perfect life no one, including us, couldn't live. First means this. It means that apart from Christ, your hope will be unstable and incomplete. 
that any aspirations that you have of perfection, any aspirations that you have of living a good life that is satisfying to God, any aspirations that you simply have, it may not even be of, sat- of a life satisfying to God. It may just be a satisfying life to yourself, a life full of joy and hope and peace and all that kind of stuff. That any aspirations that you have apart from Christ, living his perfect life in and through you, apart from that, your hope will, will remain unstable and incomplete. You see, it's arrogant to think that for all the failed attempts in human history to create heaven on earth, for all the failed attempts to create like a utopian society or a utopian life, it's arrogant to think that all of those failed simply because you weren't the one in charge. You see, to try to find abundant life to try to find lasting hope, to try to find identity and meaning in anything apart from Jesus Christ and his perfect life is to search for a finish line on a treadmill. You will never find it. That's why treadmills are terrible. Because there's no end. There's no end. But when you recognize, get this, when you recognize that you aren't just a sinner because you sin, but that you sin because you're a sinner, if you recognize that and receive the free gift of God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, you'll go from bearing guilt by association with Adam to having grace by association with Christ. You say, how, how is it that I'm a sinner because of Adam? Isn't that guilt by association, by association? That's so unfair. Yeah, the guilt by association in Adam was necessary to set up the grace by association we receive in Jesus Christ. And finally, the second thing that it means for you is that if you are a Christian, then Jesus Christ now lives in you and wants to continue to live his perfect life through you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Which means that if you're a Christian, you've not only been redeemed by his righteousness, you have now been called and empowered to live a life of righteousness. And here's the, here's the good news of the gospel, is that if you are in Christ, you actually can live that life. So, pursue holiness and pursue obedience, not so that God will save you, but because he has saved you and has empowered you by his Holy Spirit who lives within you. See the righteous life of Christ and now by the Holy Spirit of God. Let's go and do likewise. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are the perfect son of God. Thank you for coming and living the life we couldn't live. Obeying perfectly in ways we could, we could never obey on our own. And for being the perfect sacrifice on behalf of us so that by your power and by your spirit, we actually can follow you in obedience. We actually can pursue holiness. We actually can say no to unrighteousness. 
not because of any power in us, but because you live in and through us and empower us to glorify you with our lives. Would that be true of us as a church? Would that be true of us this semester? Would that be true of us tomorrow? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.